This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we're celebrating because our program and radio form has been online for a year now. We want to thank the tens of thousands of folks worldwide who tune in weekly. This week, we're reviewing some of the biggest topics of the past year and highlighting key interviews some listeners may have missed. But before we get to our anniversary review, Kurt Devine is here with this week's Latin American News Roundup. Legislators in Uruguay voted by a slight margin to legalize abortion during the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. The bill passed in the lower house of Uruguay's Congress with 50 votes to 49. President Jose Mejica said he will approve the bill if the Senate approves the changes, as it already voted in favor of a more liberal version of the bill in December. Uruguay Senator Monica Xavier of the Frente Amplio Coalition spoke about the decision. It is the consensus of the Senate to agree with the decision made by the lower house to pass the law. Abortion is illegal in all Latin American countries other than Cuba, except in cases of rape, severe deformation, or danger to the mother's life. Police detained Google's president in Brazil for failing to remove two YouTube videos attacking a local mayoral candidate. Although Google will appeal the arrest of President Fabio José Silva Coelho, the Brazilian court order for his arrest raises broader questions about Google's responsibility for content uploaded on its sites by third parties. The controversial video suggests mayoral candidate Alcides Bernal of Campo Grande committed crimes that shame his campaign, according to Brazilian media. Brazilian judges have previously held Google executives responsible for not removing videos that offend candidates' dignity, but after appeal, those decisions were overturned. In the current case, Google obeyed the court order and removed one video after exhausting appeals. The second video was removed by the user who posted it. Venezuelan and Chinese officials signed an agreement to develop a gold mine in the southern Bolivar state said to contain 17 million ounces of gold. President Hugo Chavez called the Las Cristinas gold mine one of the biggest reservoirs of gold that exists, not just in Venezuela, but in the world. The agreement with the Chinese company, China International Trust and Investment Corporation, adds to the $36 billion in loans China has credited to Venezuela in recent years. Mexican officials arrested one of the country's most wanted drug traffickers, Ivan Velasquez Caballero, known as El Taliban, of the violent Zetas cartel. Authorities said the Zetas cartel has been fighting a violent internal battle between Velasquez Caballero and the cartel's leader, Miguel Angel Trevino Morales. The split occurred after a series of shootouts centered in northern Mexico. Velasquez Caballero is the third alleged cartel leader detained by authorities this month. All have been accused of leading factions of the Gulf Cartels or Zetas, which have been fighting for smuggling territory near the U.S. border. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. For the remainder of the program, we'll be dealing with some of the top stories and subjects we've covered on Latin Pulse during the past year. One of the biggest stories of the year, if not the past decade, is the drug war and its lethal front in Mexico. On our very first program, we interviewed Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists about how the drug cartels operate. Just to note, this interview includes graphic and frank descriptions that may disturb some listeners. They start doing these mass kidnappings. They, what they do is that they, they see people immigrating from Guatemala, Honduras, on their 
way to 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 the north to the U.S. trying to cross the border. But in the in that in that path, uh, drug traffickers have seen that these people usually comes with some cash because they need to pay the coyotes, the people who cross them. So they kidnap them. They kidnap bosses full of people from around the world. And what I'm surprised is not it's not only Mexicans who are immigrating. You got all Central America. Uh, at a recent mass kidnapping, there were found pe- bodies, really, because uh, they, they, they usually are killed uh, by, by the criminals operating in these zones. Uh, people from Asia, from Africa, and uh, they, they put them in different homes, and they say, tell me the name of your relatives back home, and we'll call them. So they separate them. People who may have some money, people who really are poor, the poor, the poorest people around the world, they put in another house and they start calling and they classify them. These are the maybes. These are the people whose family might send us some money. They are, we are negotiating. These are the people who are definitely won't give us anything. And they usually people that are killed. Uh, we we got a, a drama of uh, women uh, who were kidnapped by these gangs, uh, and they are forced to work. They are forced to wash the clothes of of the drug traffickers. Uh, they you know they are abused, sexually abused, uh, and if they don't pay, they 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 become slaves. Uh, I mean I don't know if there is such a war a, a war, but I would say like an underground. A slavery operation, which is probably even worse because nobody really knows you are a slave. Uh, so this is a, a drama. What I mean, the the murder. Uh, they, they they have to commit a mass murder because they suddenly have a hundred people in the house, and the how they can pay any any ransom. So they are mutilated and uh, usually put into big uh, holes where they burn their mutilated bodies. I mean, it's, uh, uh, the, we are learning about all these things in the last year of uh, how bad the situation is because authorities in Mexico have found recently uh, these, uh, these holes with, with bodies that you can really recognize. It I, seems impossible to me, but some of these stories, the horror of these stories that... There are parts of Tamaulipas and other parts of border states, border Mexican states, where the central government doesn't have control any longer and where journalists really are not welcome and are at threat for death, almost as if they got off an airplane. They would they would be found very soon uh, by these groups. So how are we getting these stories? And just brave journalists going in? What's happening? Well, I, that's the sad thing is that we are not getting the full stories. Uh, you got a, a media extremely intimidated. You got, unfortunately, uh, authorities, local authorities in most of these places. Uh, some of them co-opted. Uh, some of them, you know, corrupted. Uh, and the media sometimes uh, censor themselves uh, because they don't want to uh, risk their life that much. And sometimes they do. So the little bit of information that we know is because of these courageous journalists who have actually uh, tried to follow the path of those immigrants. And as they, 
actually went through, they found all this other information that they actually were not even going to cover. Uh, amongst other ways we have found out is by some um, people who have been kidnapped, but that, you know, uh, by some uh, uh, kind of action, you know, by some kind of action of God or something, they have managed to escape and have come out a few of them there to talk because guess remember the organized crime already got their phone numbers already got where they live in what country and who their relatives are and they are for months telling you we're following your kids they better come up with the ransom so when you get out of there if you are alive you don't really want to talk to anybody so we have had a few accounts that has managed to come out and know the, the how, you know, uh, and we know the terror, how, how horrible this situation is. The authorities do not have the capacity. That's one, one uh, another problem. Uh, in most of these countries, the, the, the police and their armies are unequipped. Uh, and, and I think internationally, you know, we don't really know how, you know, the extent of this problem yet. This summer, Sonia Wolf of the Mexican nonprofit called in C-Day told us about how the drug war is intertwining further with the trail northward for immigrants through Mexico. Many of the, of the migrants, um, when they start their journey in Mexico, take what is, what is known as La Bestia. Um, it's a, um, not a passenger train, but it's... Um, their way of um, of transiting what is a, a long um, a long path um, through Mexico. They're riding on top of the train. Yes. They're not really buying tickets. It is yes. Um, so it's a, it's very much a, a clandestine journey, also a very dangerous one, and this makes um, migrants vulnerable to all sorts of um, abuses. Um, it is, um, as I said, a, a dangerous journey. Many migrants um, fall off the train. Um, um, lose legs or arms um, along the way, um, but also they suffer um, abuses um, a lot of the time, unfortunately, at the, at the hands of um, state agents. Um, a lot of the time this is police we're talking about, municipal state police, um, but also um, uh, agents who work for the National Institute of Migration. Um, what we find is um, a variety of, of human rights abuses. Um, migrants are assaulted, they are kidnapped, women are, are raped. It is thought that um, six out of ten um, women migrants passing through Mexico are being raped. Uh, many migrants um, are also being um, murdered. Migrants from Central America often leave home not just to find a better economic climate, but also due to political and social conditions in their home countries. Vicki Gass of the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA, told us on an early program about political conditions in Honduras. First of all, human rights violations have occurred, have continued to occur to this day in Honduras. Human rights defenders, journalists, uh, people opposed to uh, the Lobo government continue to be attacked. Now, it's not at the level of the 1980s when there were civil wars throughout Central America, but it's still at its an alarming rate. Corruption and impunity are just is, are, are inherent into this system. And uh, even the official truth commission 
came out with a report in July saying part of the problems with the human rights violations that have occur occurred or that occurred under the um, the de facto regime, um, part of the, the, the human rights violations were linked specifically to um, state actors, so either the military or the police. But part of the problem is, is impunity, and nobody is ever held responsible for their actions. And so today, when you look at who's in government in, in Honduras, besides President Lobo and besides the human rights figures he's put in place or the special prosecutors on human rights violations or internal investigations, you still have people who were behind the coup, either the military forces or people who, um, how would you say it, people who condoned it legally in the Supreme Court, or people who actually fabricated a, a letter saying that Mel Zelaya resigned when in fact he didn't. He was forced out of the country in his pajamas. We devoted several programs to politics in Nicaragua because of elections there. Here's an interview conducted via Skype with Manuel Orozco of the Inter-American Dialogue with his views on President Daniel Ortega. The discussion often in Managua is about a co-presidency that Daniel Ortega shares the presidency with his wife. Um, there's criticism of this. Um, but you were on the program in the fall before the re-election and predicted that President Ortega in the second term would be um, more or less uh, what uh, the first President Bush promised to America, a kinder, gentler Daniel Ortega. Is it too early for us to see whether that part of your prediction is true? Well, at this point, that is what he's aiming at. <clears throat> you have two, two strategies. One is to keep a soft profile, uh, not to be the same president of the first administration, be less pervasive in his use of political force, for example. And he is basically at this point negotiating with the opposition, with a new opposition, because one of the byproducts of this electoral process where Ortega won was that there were no um, power brokers left from the political elites that led the opposition for this process, this election. But um, so it, it was up to Ortega to a large extent to identify who would be the legitimate uh, opposition leader. And that's what he's been doing. He has found Mr. Montelegre to be that power broker, that legitimate power broker. On the other hand, he sees that his, his influence, his dependence on Venezuela, for example, may not be last, uh, long-lasting. And he also sees that within the FSLN, the party is becoming more fragmented for different reasons. One is for ideological differences. We also covered Salvadoran politics with Imene Aguilar of the influential Salvadoran website called El Faro. We're talking about uh, President Mauricio Funes mm -hmm. of the FMLN in El Salvador. And President Funes was a television reporter before he became a politician and was renowned for his investigative reporting and for holding the government up accountable, and accountable. Yeah. And so now he's not talking to the media? This, this sounds very strange. Well, he has a very strong character. So sometimes when reporters ask him questions he doesn't like, he will... He will like come out really strong and saying that you're wrong, what you're asking is not right, and 
he I think it's more like his character than the way what he used to be. Well, I will tell you that that from my point of view, the the tradition of the FMLN is that they have never had a very good media policy. No. Um, and, and you agree with this. Why? Well, they are very, they are a very structured party. So it's always, for example, with the, the congressmen and women, when you ask someone of a subject that they are not supposed to talk about, they w will always say, no, that's, I'm not in charge of that subject, so please talk to this person, which is al almost always someone of a higher rank in the, in the party. But I think that's the, the, how the president reacts to media. It's not, it's not because he's, he's the, the president who won the elections with the FMLN. They're almost up, uh, two different things now. So really, there's a split between the president's office and the party. Yeah. Can you explain that to us? Well, ever since he came to office and before, after the elections, he he shown that he made clear that his decisions were the ones that counted. And before the inauguration, some of the the FMLN people who had been helping him said some things to the media and he came out and said that they were wrong, that only his declarations were the ones that could be, that were the ones from the government. When we return to our anniversary special, highlights from two of the biggest stories of the year, political and economic reforms in Cuba and the Pope's trip to Latin America. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to our anniversary program on Latin Pulse as we highlight some of the top stories of the past year and feature excerpts from important but perhaps lesser-known interviews. One of the key stories this program covered extensively was the important Cuban economic reforms. Eric Hirschberg, the director of the American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, critiqued the reforms on an early program. My central criticism of the reforms that were put forth, and just for, for your listeners, the, the principal reform, although there are a lot of other secondary reforms, but the principal reform is saying that from now on, a Cuban who wants to start a business can start a business, because that used to be forbidden. It was a state-controlled economy. You can start a business, and here are 180 activities that it's now legal to start a business in. Um, but the problem that some of us have is that it's perfectly fine that in those 180 activities you can start a business. But what about lots of other activities, first of all? And secondly, why are none of those activities knowledge, technology, and education intensive when, if anything, 
a gain of the revolution was having trained, having educated well generations of Cubans. And the state has maintained the control over those sectors of the economy that are actually capable of producing wealth and broad social welfare. And so what's opened up is the opportunity to engage in informal commerce in selling pizza on the street, in being a clown at uh, children's birthday parties, uh, at being a musical group, um, but not in web design, in the development of strategic plans for businesses, and so on and so forth, not in engineering services. And if Cuba is going to embark on a dynamic trajectory of development that benefits that population and makes it possible to continue the public investments in education and social welfare and so on, it's going to have to have an economic foundation that draws on sectors of the economy that are absent from these reforms. So it's really more a conceptual problem rather than a problem of corruption as we conventionally define it that worries us. To the extent that there that corruption enters into it. And again, I don't think that's a term we used, but it is the case that in the unproductive and in many respects irrational economic framework that is in place in Cuba today, there are sectors that have political power and are also gaining economic power. And one hypothesis that we put forth is that one of the reasons that the reforms that needed to happen didn't happen is that there are groups in power who prefer the status quo where they're cleaning up through a set of economic distortions. What groups are we talking about? The military? I think the military is part of it. Uh, I think there are sectors of the party, uh, but I think the party has multiple currents within it. Uh, I think there are people who are associated with the large state enterprises. And in general, one of the key bifurcations in Cuba today is between people who have access to hard currency and people who don't. And so if you were trying to do a kind of political mapping of what would be the constellation of interests on one side or another of the divide over how to reconfigure the economy, clearly one central cleavage will be between those who have hard currency resources and those who don't. That right now is the fundamental dividing line in terms of defining dynamics of inequality in Cuba. And we, and I speak here as a political scientist, we don't actually have any decent study of what the politics are inside the Cuban regime between competing policy options. We also featured the results of a rare poll of Cubans about the reforms conducted by the nonprofit group Freedom House. Daniel Kellengart of Freedom House discussed the poll with us. Uh, four in five of those people that we surveyed said that they have seen changes taking place uh, uh, in recent months in Cuba. Uh, many point to the cuenta propistas, uh, the self-employed, and uh, I think it was about two-thirds of respondents uh, know someone who has uh, applied for and received a license. And they say they see these uh, street vendors on every corner. Um, And what's more significant is not just these changes in in small-scale private enterprise, uh, but it's really a change in attitudes that suddenly change – is real and it is affecting how people think. So to just give a couple of examples, one of the people interviewed uh, sells uh, food 
on the street and she's aspiring to setting up her own little restaurant so people can come in and sit at the table and she'd have a nice tablecloth. Um, there's another person that we interviewed who's an architect and she sees that these uh, licenses for what they call self-employment are provided for really unskilled jobs like selling on the street or hairdressers or the um, and she's asking why can't I get a license to be an architect to help build houses um, so she's looking forward to that so people are not talking as they did in the past about you know maybe there'll be reforms and if even if they are they might get rolled back People are talking as if this is here to stay, and we're looking for more. Some of our most popular programs revolved around Pope Benedict XVI's visit to Cuba and Mexico. The Cuban portion of the trip proved to be the most controversial. Some criticized the Pope and Cuban Archbishop Jaime Ortega for not meeting with Cuban dissident groups, including the famous Ladies in White. We interviewed Tom Quigley, formerly of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, who flew to Cuba to see the Pope. There's no reason that uh, that can be offered why he should meet with this particular group of dissidents. There are many other dissidents in Cuba, and there are many people that the Pope has to meet with because protocol calls for him to meet with the interreligious groups, with the other with the ecumenical groups, the Protestant churches, and the Jewish community, and the Islamic community, and he has to meet with the civil authorities. That's just part of uh, the game that uh, these papal visits uh, entail. Should he meet with this particular group? There's nothing they have to tell him that he doesn't know already or that he can learn, cannot learn from the Cuban church authorities that he deals with. So it's just a, it's a ploy to get them up there or to get people like Carlos Aire and some others who run blogs on the Cuban-American front here just to give them ammunition against Jaime Ortega. Arguably, before Pope John Paul II's visit to Cuba, there might not have been any dissident groups like there are today in the post-2003 Cuban reality, in the post-Fidel Castro reality. So isn't a visit by a pope to a communist or post-communist state, doesn't that hold the same sort of potential for change going forward? Well, change has gone uh, on. I mean, there really are so many differences. There were dissidents at the time of John Paul's visit. Uh, there were key people within the Catholic Church in particular. There was a very good publication out of Pinar del Rio in the far western part of the country called, uh, uh, lost the name of the thing, uh, Vitral, that uh, <clears throat> published... And Vitral has been very important. It was a very important, but it was closed down initially when the new the Jaime, or rather, uh, Piero Ciro Gonzalez was the bishop of Pinar del Rio, and uh, he and uh, Dagoberto Valdes caused a great deal of uh, heartburn for the communist authorities. Uh, Ciro Gonzalez retired because he was over 75, and they, got, they, they closed down Vitral, but then opened it up again. But it's a much more um, generic or general kind of a publication, not as, as tough as the earlier Vitral was. But but in the Cuban sense, to have a publication that doesn't exactly answer to state censors, that is a, a, absolutely an aperture. Right. And today there is a thing that comes out of the Archdiocese of, Maya, of, of Havana called uh, uh, Espacio Laica, Lay Voices, Lay Space. And it is run by the same people who put out Vitral and others, and they publish things every week. It's a blog. It's on the, it's on the, the uh, Internet. 
So it doesn't get the high visibility, but then no publication gets high visibility in Cuba except the official government publications of Granma and Juventud Rebelde and, uh, and so on, the, public, the newspapers. There are a few publications in, in the, each of the dioceses, or most of them right now, do have a paper of some kind, a, <clears throat> a four-page thing or a smaller uh, booklet that they publish each weekday. And it contains some uh, Sunday the mass uh, prayers of the mass of that day and uh, some information about what's happening. But they're very mild. But th they were not possible even just 10 years ago. So there's been a lot of, uh, I mean, progress. It's, uh, it's very slow and nowhere near where things ought to be. But uh, simply no, de no denying that Raul Castro in particular has brought about changes. That concludes our anniversary review on Latin Pulse. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, announcer Victor Kilo, and writers Jordan Derry and Colin Campbell, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>